Well, it is uh, very good to be back with you all and back in the pulpit. Been on the sidelines for a few weeks here as we've welcomed another son into our family. The baby Asher is doing great. Angel's doing great. It's nice to have been home these past few weeks to help out and just enjoy time with the family. But it's very good to be back as well. Big thank you to Chris for serving all these weeks. That being said, it's time for us to pick up right where we left off, and that's the very end of Matthew chapter 5. So you can take your Bibles and open there now, Matthew chapter 5. The final, chap- final passage of the chapter, verses 43 through 48, is what we have today. And I think Christ saved his best for last. It's taken us quite a while to get to this point, but good things are worth the wait. I didn't plan this or intend this, but it's taken us several months just to get through Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48. From a vacation to the holidays to having a baby, we've had several interruptions going through these passages. And because of that, I felt the need to, to reset up the context of this passage almost every time we do this. It's just so vital to understand what's going on here. And we're just going to have to do that one more time. This is a special section in Christ's Sermon on the Mount. He began the body of the sermon back in verse 21. And that thereafter, he opens with a, a salvo of six contrasts. And these all springboard off of verse 20. Matthew 5.20, he said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees were the top religious leaders of Israel. They were fastidious in keeping the law of God. And everyone believed they were by far the most righteous people around. But Jesus says, your righteousness has to far exceed theirs if you're going to even hope to enter the kingdom. That would have been a shocking statement. Is that even possible? How can that be? And that also would have been an insulting statement to the scribes and Pharisees. It's like, is Jesus suggesting they actually weren't righteous? That, that they don't have enough righteousness to enter the kingdom? And, and yes, that, that's exactly what he's saying. That's because theirs was a phony righteousness, a self-righteousness. And before one, these guys were legalists who added their own rules and regulations on top of God's law. They're the lawyers who invented the, the small print, the religious small print that they would use to control the people. And worse yet, they, they used this man-made law to actually overturn and lower the standard of God. God's law as found in the Old Testament is, in reality, it's way too high of a standard for them to keep, for anyone to keep. Who can keep all of God's laws? Who could be as righteous as the law demanded? But they still wanted to appear righteous, so they found ways of creating these legal loopholes. All this was nonsense, and worse than nonsense, that the system they created was blinding the people. These were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel, but they were leading the flock of God astray. And so Jesus came to correct them and take his flock back to the living waters. And that correction, that's what we're witnessing here in chapter 5. With these six contrasts. He's showing them and us what the true surpassing righteousness of his kingdom really looks like. All of this is in contrast to their phony self-righteousness. You should know well by now that with, with each of these six contrasts, Jesus is not opposing the law of Moses. 
He came to fulfill that law. He's, he's rather opposing their interpretation of the law of Moses, their distortion of the law of Moses. So six times he's teaching somewhere on a hill above the Sea of Galilee. Six times in this chapter, he says something to the effect of, you have heard that it was said, which is a summary statement of, of scribal teaching on the law. You can repeat some of their teaching. But then six times after that, he, he follows up and says, but I say to you, he's not citing some other authority. He's appealing entirely to his own inherent authority as the Messiah come to reveal the true will of God, the true heart of God's law. And so his teaching here throughout this chapter has to do with the heart and specifically the heart of sin. He's unpacking the true nature of sin which they got wrong. You know, the backyard of our church here, before we redid it, was just a barren patch of dirt. The whole thing was just a patch of dirt. But after the winter rains, it would spring up with bright green weeds. And we would occasionally mow them down. And for a moment, it looked like a nice lawn. Like the weeds cut short, they pretty much looked like grass. It it looked good. But they were still weeds. And the scribes and Pharisees, these guys were happy to have a spiritual lawn of weeds, so to speak. They're fine with that, so long as they look good. But God is not fine with that. He has zero tolerance for sin and self-righteousness. And this is why Jesus is exposing the heart of sin, that these weeds might be rooted out entirely. And so far, going through this chapter, we've seen the heart of murder, adultery, divorce, deceit, And retaliation, the subjects Christ himself chooses. We finish today with the heart of hatred. And these six contrasts contain some of Christ's most popular and profound statements. But though it's taken us months to get here, again, he saves the best for last. In this final chapter, or rather, again, final passage of this chapter before he moves on, verses 43 through 48, It really contains the pinnacle of his teaching on the surpassing righteousness that characterizes his kingdom. This is still the standard of righteousness that should also characterize his true disciples. And so these words are directly for us. But it's still a high standard. Maybe you thought what Jesus said last time was hard enough. The whole business about turning the other cheek. Jesus instructed us not to return evil for evil or pursue retribution. But now he's not done. He moves to the positive side of that exhortation. It's one thing to simply refrain from retaliating against your opponents. It's another to now love your enemies. To actively love your enemies. Talk about a high bar of righteousness. We can't protest, though, because the Lord Jesus himself blazed this trail for us. He did this first. No one ever so loved their enemies more than Christ. And in so doing, he he simply revealed to us the heart of God. This now must be our hearts as we follow him. So with that being said, let's go ahead and read now this passage. See what's in store with this final paramount contrast. Matthew 5, 43 through 48, follow along. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies 
And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And Christ's final subject in this chapter is that of love and hate. And one more time, we're going to use a familiar outline just to walk through these verses, see what he's saying. It's so helpful in capturing what the law of Moses really said about these issues, how the scribes changed things, but we want to pay extra close attention in this morning to what Jesus has to say on love, on hatred. So let's just get into it. A simple outline just to follow along. First is what Moses said. What Moses said about these issues, meaning the law of Moses. And this is in verse 43. Jesus summarizes it partially. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. We've done this multiple times now. Before we examine how the scribes altered God's law, let's just figure out what the law actually said. What the law of Moses actually said about love and hate. And in this case, the first part of what Jesus says, love your neighbor, comes directly from the Old Testament. The second part, hate your enemy, is found nowhere in the Old Testament. That doesn't come from the Old Testament. That's what the scribes added to the Old Testament. When it comes to what the law of Moses really said, it's really all about loving your neighbor. The emphasis is on loving your neighbor, never hating your enemy. The command here to love your neighbor comes from Leviticus 19, verse 18. I'll read that for you. Leviticus 19, 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice the connection there with vengeance, which Jesus brought out in the fifth contrast. You have this negative prohibition, don't seek revenge, don't pursue vengeance. But that's not enough. It went, it goes further, the law of God, and and positively tells you, you have to also love your neighbor as yourself. And actually that Leviticus 19.18 passage already implies that, that your neighbor is the person who wronged you. Your neighbor is the one tempting you to take revenge. But it's, it's simply not enough to just not hate that neighbor and refrain from revenge. God's law went further and directed his people to, to love their neighbor. This love for others, even if they have wronged you, truly is the heart of hearts of God's will for his people, for how they are to relate to one another. Later in Matthew, Jesus will confirm that As we read this morning, love for God and love for neighbor are the two greatest commandments God gave. Again, Matthew 22, 40. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets, meaning the whole Old Testament. If you could just love God with all your heart and just love your neighbor as yourself perfectly, you'd be fulfilling the intent of all 613 commandments in the Torah. You wouldn't need them. 
The apostle Paul being well-versed in the law brings this point out. Listen to Romans 13, eight through 10. He says, Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And first John 4, 8 says, God is love. God himself is characterized by this self-giving love. He wants his people to be the same. So when it comes to all of our horizontal relationships, love for neighbor is really what it's all about. Galatians 5, 14. Again, the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, look, this teaching wasn't a secret in Christ's day. It was known. It should have been obvious. The question is, how could the Jews have gotten this one so wrong? And God's will on the Old Testament, it is clear. How were they able to, to mess this one up as well and distort this? I'm going to show you. Listen to another interaction between Jesus and a lawyer. Lawyer meaning back then someone who is an expert in the law of Moses. This is Luke 10, 25. Just listen. Luke 10, 25 and following. It says, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You got the right answer. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Just do this and you'll live. You want eternal life? Okay, it's just, it's simple. Just perfectly love God with all your heart and perfectly love your neighbor as yourself. And you don't got to worry about anything. And in a sense, that's true. But of course, because we're fallen sinners, that, that promise of the law can never be fulfilled. Its demands become impossible because of our fallen condition. We can't be justified by keeping this law. It's therefore in turn meant to drive us to the throne of mercy for grace, which God freely bestows on those who go to him. And so the only way for us now to be justified by God is, is by faith, by faith alone. Sadly though, most Jews were blind to this reality. They all had subscribed to this man-made religion of the scribes and rabbis, which was all about justifying self but look, the standard of the law is just super high. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who can do that? Who can keep this law perfectly? No, the, the only way I can meet this standard and justify myself is if I find some way to lower this standard. And do you know how the Jews lowered this standard? They changed the definition of neighbor. And so going back to that lawyer and Jesus, the lawyer responds to Jesus and he says, it says this, verse 29, but wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? This is a perfect segue into number two, what the rabbi said. The second point 
in our text just to follow along what, what the rabbi said. Jewish rabbis and scribes, over the centuries after the Old Testament, they weren't ignorant of Leviticus 19.18. They knew very well what the law of God actually said. But again, the problem was that the demands were often just too high. So over time, they, they found subtle ways of changing them. They had to somehow modify what God's law demanded so that they could appear to keep it. And so when it comes to this command, love your neighbor as yourself, they did that in two ways. First, they lowered the standard of the love command. They lowered the standard of the love command. You know, that text of Leviticus 19.18, it says, love your neighbor, how? As yourself. They knew that, but... See, in their teaching, they would over time just just start de-emphasizing or just omitting those pesky last two words. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's one thing to love your neighbor. That's fine, but love your neighbor as yourself. Here in verse 43 of Matthew 5, Jesus, again, he's relating the rabbinical understanding of the law. And so it's not surprising those two words are left out. He doesn't quote them because that, that wasn't their emphasis. The scribes and Pharisees were known for having a very high love of self. And so just to think that God wanted them to love others in the same way was just unbearable. And how about you? Think about how much time you spend on yourself, how much money you spend on yourself, how much, how much you go out of the way to serve yourself. And that's not necessarily wrong, but Would you at times do all that purely for the benefit of others and you get nothing in return? I'm sure you don't have a problem with loving your neighbor, but are you truly willing to love your neighbor as yourself? The religious leaders weren't, which is why they lowered the standard. So first they lowered the standard of the love command. Second, they narrowed the object of the love command. This command says, love your neighbor as yourself. But, you know, just who exactly qualifies as my neighbor? See, that was the loophole question the lawyer asked to Jesus, trying to justify himself. Like, you know, who exactly counts as my neighbor that I have to love like myself? And how did the Jews at that time answer that question? Well, they answered it by saying your neighbor was simply a fellow Jew in good standing. And you'll see that's an extremely narrow category of neighbor. And first off, Gentiles, they're out, right? Any Gentile automatically excluded from being your neighbor. You don't have to show them love. I mean, foreigners, they're certainly outside the category of God's people. They can't be neighbors. Neighbors had to be limited to fellow Jews. But even within Israel, only those who kept the law and the traditions of the elders counted as neighbors. There are many classes of Jews who weren't as meticulous in keeping the law. Some were unlearned, some were unrighteous. The sinner, the publican, the unclean, like these people, they're not neighbors. So already the command to love your neighbor was severely limited, but the Jewish leaders, they actually took it further that they made one more leap of logic. They reasoned that if God is telling Uh, them telling us to love our neighbors. What does that mean about how we should relate to non-neighbors? How does God want us to relate to enemies? 
Doesn't it stand to reason that God expects the opposite of love for those who are the opposite of neighbors? And that would be hatred. And so over time, an addendum to the love command was added. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. That command to hate your enemies is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. This was their teaching added over time. And they felt justified in this. They felt this was righteous. Many rabbis taught along these lines that, that Jews should not intervene to save the life of a Gentile. Make sure you can't do wrong. So if you're on a boat at sea with a Gentile, you can't push him overboard. But if he happened to fall overboard on accident, they literally taught you should do nothing to rescue him because he's not your neighbor. He's your enemy. He merits no benevolence from you. And sadly, the fires of hatred burned brightly in the hearts of these Jewish religious leaders. They built up all these artificial walls between themselves and the Gentiles, or sinners. And it got to the point where if you didn't hate these people too, you were the ungodly one. You were judged as unrighteous. They thought this was a holy hatred. But this heart of hatred certainly did not come from God or his law. And just the opposite, the law of Moses is full of mercy commands for the foreigner. Think about Leviticus 19, the same chapter as the love command. That same chapter in verse 10, it says, don't glean your vineyard or your field. Leave the, the excess of your harvest there on the ground. Why? And for the needy and the stranger. That was a means of welfare, a means of taking care of the needs of the poor, the needy, the foreigner in the land. Likewise, same chapter, Leviticus 19. It says later in verse 33, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Look at that. Far from a call to hate your enemies, the exact same chapter applies the love command to strangers, outsiders, foreigners. It seems pretty clear how God defines neighbor. It includes aliens and strangers, and it even includes enemies. Listen to this. It's a practical example from the law, Deuteronomy 22, 1 through 4. This is case law. It says, if you see your countryman's ox or sheep straying, it's lost, wandering lost, you can't ignore it. You must get it and take it back to its owner. It's your obligation to your fellow Jew in love. Likewise, if you see your countryman's donkey fallen down under its load, you can't walk past it. You have to go help him lift it back up. There's a sim- simple case law of your duty in love to your fellow Israelite. Okay, simple enough. But now listen to Exodus 23 because it applies the exact same thing, not to your fellow Israelite, but literally to your enemies. Exact same law, Exodus 23, 4 and 5. It says, if you meet your enemy's ox, your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely take it? No, it says you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Meaning get down there in there and, and help him lift it up. But this person hates you. 
Well, God says, love your enemies. Even in the Old Testament. I mean, talk about doing good to your enemies and returning good for evil. If you found a, a missing wallet filled with cash, but you see the driver's license, it's actually your best friend. What would you do? You'd return it. Trusting you're a good friend, you'd just return it. You wouldn't take any. But what if it, was, it belonged to someone who hates you, someone who you know is your enemy? What would you do? Would you return it? Would you skim a little off the top? Would you just keep it entirely? God's law, even in the Old Testament, directed his people to do good and show love even to their enemies. This spirit is captured later in Proverbs, which the Apostle Paul quoted. Proverbs 25, verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And didn't the Jews also have the example of their great king, David? Did anyone show more love to enemies than David? Several times he could have exacted revenge on King Saul, who was literally out there trying to kill him. But he spared his life several times, showing love to his enemy. Nevertheless, it didn't, didn't matter. Over the centuries, God's law said, love your neighbor. But by the day of Christ, they understood it to mean love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's God's will. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The Jews managed to take what the law commanded about how to love and turn it into a command about who to love. And that subtle distortion changed everything. They lowered the standard of love. They narrowed the object of love. And in so doing, they flipped God's will on its head. People still do this, by the way, all the time. It's easy to ignore the whole counsel of God's word, just to cherry pick a few verses out of context and create your own standard. But such mishandling of the word doesn't fly with the Lord. And so now when Jesus came along, when he came on the scene, he's just utterly demolishing all of these artificial walls the Jews built up. Yes, everything he says here is going to offend them in their pride. But I mean, he just, he can't let them eclipse the second greatest command with their hatred and feel justified in it. He's got to say something. He has to correct them. And so this brings us now to number three, what Jesus said. What Jesus said. Here, Jesus has a lot to say in response to this last mutilation of God's law. He's going to let us know the true intent of God's word when it comes to love and hate. And we need to carefully go through these verses, see what he has to say. It all starts, though, and stems from the main command, verse 44. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. This is a command, present active imperative, love and keep on loving your enemies. This verb for love is familiar. The verb form is agapao. This love speaks of showing favor to others. This is not phileo love, the love of warm affection. That's the type of love that might be expressed by a kiss. This type of love, that the one that Christ commands, it may involve your affections, but it must involve your actions. Agapao love seeks the good of others. And it's, it's expressed by deeds of benevolence. 
It's not surprising the Lord would command us to love others like this. It is surprising he would command us to love our enemies like this. I mean, surely this would have startled the audience there on the hill by the Sea of Galilee. I bet some gasps were heard in the crowd because no one was teaching this. There's not a single person in any record of anyone teaching love your enemies like this. No one except God, of course. But Jesus, he's here showing us the nature of God's own love. Human love, worldly love, it's so conditional. We love people, we love things based on their loveliness, their attractiveness, their worth. But God's love is unconditional. It's need-oriented. And this is why God's love extends even to his own enemies and it serves their greatest need. You should know Romans 5.8 and 5.10. It's that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. I mean, think about us. We were lost, dead sinners. We were God's enemies. But he demonstrated his, his agape love toward us. And what? And not just feeling warm, fuzzy feelings for us, but in sending his son Christ to earth to die on the cross, to rise from the dead, to pay for our sins, that we might be reconciled from enemies to friends. If it was not in God's nature to love enemies, we would all still be lost and dead in our sins. But because this love is part of the very nature of God, having received it, having been transformed by it, it better be part of your nature now as well. It will be if you truly belong to him. And so we're to show the same self-giving love of Christ to all around us who are in need. Because like Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which he gave in response to that lawyer who said, who is my neighbor? According to Jesus, your neighbor is not just your friend. Your neighbor is anyone around you who is in need. And that would even include your enemies. Regarding our enemies, we were never commanded to like them. We're never commanded to phileo them, meaning you don't have to be buddy-buddy with them. But we must do good to them. If they're in need, we must meet their basic needs. Just overcoming evil with good. And I believe that's actually what's behind the second part of this command. This command is two-pronged. Verse 44, he says, love your enemies. And also what? And pray for those who persecute you. And what is prayer but a chief expression of love for enemies? We're, we're appealing to God for their greatest good. That would, of course, involve a plea for their salvation. Really, what action could be more loving toward your persecutors? It's in the nature of man to retaliate against persecutors, but it's in the nature of the Lord to pray, Father, forgive them. And speaking of prayer, Jews were not known for praying for their enemies, but against their enemies. They did not pray for them. They prayed against them. These are called imprecatory prayers. They didn't ask God to bless and save their enemies. They, they simply asked God to curse their enemies. Now, to be sure, there are a few imprecatory prayers in the Psalms, calling on God to judge the wicked. But these are so different from what the Jews in that day were doing. 
And the Psalms come from truly righteous men like David who hate evil, who love righteousness. They have a zeal for God's name. They express a right desire for God's holiness to be vindicated when the wicked refuse to repent. The psalmists are expressing just a love for God's justice. But you see, these Jews, they were driven by personal prejudice, individual hatred. They did not hold in tension law and grace and love and justice like the scriptures do. No, that they leaned all the way over to the side of wrath, capsized, and went overboard into hatred. The scripture never tells us to go that far. Yeah, we must have a holy hatred of evil, but look, knowing that we too once were unworthy sinners, our primary prayer for the wicked is going to be for their salvation, that they might be changed, that they might receive mercy and be saved. If they refuse to repent, well, then they will encounter God's justice. So be it. But we are to leave that justice to the Lord. Just like we learned last time, we we leave vengeance to the Lord. Right? Romans 12, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so relationally, how does the Lord expect us to relate to the wicked, to enemies, to persecutors? It's just, it's never with hatred. It's never with a personal hatred. It's still with love. Like Jesus summed up Luke 6, 27, 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. There's already so much to say here by way of application, but before we get to that, let's just finish going through these verses. Won't be long. Verse 45 We're commanded to love our enemies, but why? On verse 45, he says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And the concern of this verse is not gaining the status of of sonship, but giving the evidence of sonship. You have to keep in mind the context that the whole Sermon on the Mount flows out of the Beatitudes at the beginning. Meaning, nothing Jesus says in this whole sermon can be lived out by the unregenerate. Only those who are already born again, already made sons and daughters of God by faith, can live out meaningfully the surpassing righteousness Jesus details. And the point he's making here, though, is that loving your enemies is one of the greatest evidences you truly belong to God. Now, he's really your father in heaven. So the question then for you who claim to know God is, do you bear any family resemblance? The son of an earthly father will resemble his father in many ways. And and so it goes for the children of God. Do you look like God? To be like God, it's one of God's purposes in saving us. And it has so much to do with just emulating God's love. Ephesians 5, 1 through 2. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. No one was more impacted by the Lord's teaching on love than the Apostle John, the Apostle of love. And all throughout his epistle of 1 John, he's showing us that, that love for others is one of the primary tests evidencing you really know the Lord. For example, 1 John 4, 8, 
He says, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. As Bible commentator Plummer noted, quote, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine, end quote. And the rest of verse 45, Christ goes on to give us an example of how God himself returns a good for evil and loves his enemies. He says, verse 45, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's without question that God reserves a special saving love for his elect. But this does not negate the general love God has for all mankind. And God expresses that love through something we call common grace, which he even gives to his enemies. And think about all the people who just absolutely hate God. They scorn him. They rebel against him. They revile him. They slander him. They, they live in their sins. But God continues to sustain their lives, which is already pure grace. God goes even further and shows a type of love to them, a love which is never reciprocated. And he provides for their needs. He gives them good things. You know, without the sun shining or the rain falling, everyone would just starve. But notice verse 45, God doesn't just passively allow. He's actively causing the sun and rain to fall on all people. Good and evil. The righteous and the unrighteous. This is a picture of his love, his common love for all people, including his enemies. And Christ says this clearly as an example, we're to follow. Like father, like son. Galatians 6.10 indicates while we too might reserve a special love for the household of faith, we are still called to do good to all people, enemies included. In verses 46 and 47, Christ continues to emphasize love for enemies. Verse 46, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. The scribes and Pharisees, they had a very low standard of love. Their love was no different from those in the world. It was not unconditional and self-giving, but Selfish, self-serving. Their love was kind of like a, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine type of love. Their benevolence toward others had to have something in it for them. They had to have some cut in the equation. That's, that's cheap love. That's worldly love. That's not God's love. Have you ever spoken to a super friendly customer service agent? Just the, the, the nicest, most helpful person you've ever spoken to. You know why you feel the need to compliment them at the end. You say to them, I just feel I want to let you know you're the nicest agent I've ever spoken to. And they say back, well, yeah, you know, I'm just doing my job. And when you think about it, like, that's true. They're, they're just doing their job. <laughs> why do you think they're bending over backwards to be nice to you? They're so patient with all your dumb questions. They're helping you out. It's because they're getting paid. It looks good for them. Look, even the wicked can be persuaded to show the lowest common denominator love where there's something in it for them. And Jesus mentions this love can be found even among tax collectors and Gentiles. Now, he actually says this as a rebuke 
for the phony love of the scribes and Pharisees. Because to them, no one was more despised than Gentiles and tax collectors. And these guys were just the worst, unredeemable reprobates. But look, Jesus says that the love of the religious leaders, it's really no better than the love of the tax collectors or the Gentiles. Which really means that the religious leaders themselves are no better than the tax collectors or the Gentiles. Their righteousness is no better than the people they despised. I mean, showing love only to people who love you. Do you expect some reward for doing that from God? Greeting only your friends. Is that outstanding? He says in verse 47, what more are you doing than others? Secretly, that, that's a big point. See that phrase, what, uh, more than others? That's a word in the Greek. It means extraordinary, remarkable. It means surpassing. And look, this word is actually the adjective form of the verb surpass, back from verse 20. And you have to remember, this whole discussion started with Christ's claim that your righteousness must what? Surpass. Same word, basically. Your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. To be in the kingdom, your righteousness and here, your love must not be worldly and, and ordinary like theirs was but far surpassing. You want to enter the kingdom, you need the righteousness of God. You want to be in the kingdom, you need the love of God. This is what it means to be his disciple. And so if if your love is no different than those in the world, what makes you think you belong in this kingdom? Now, to be sure, trying really hard to be more righteous and more loving is, is not the means of gaining entrance into the kingdom. No one can merit entrance into Christ's kingdom because, look, we are not righteous. We are not loving. I'm not. No one is perfectly. The whole standard of right living Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount is impossible before you come to faith. But only those who have been broken by their sin and have gone to the Savior in a repentant faith are then forgiven, transformed, given the spirit who alone enables them to live out Christ's words. This is what you must do or else the entire Christian life will be just an unbearable burden to you. And this, this tension of Christian living is perfectly captured in the last verse, verse 48. He says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. There, there's a tension between the possibility and impossibility of everything Christ demands in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so vital to get this tension right. So much so that we're going to save this last verse for next week. It's that special. (laughs) It really is. You have to understand that tension. So we'll just leave it there. We'll come back to it. But for now, suffice it to say, for those born again, and for those spirit-empowered, everything Jesus teaches is for us. This is how he expects us to live as kingdom citizens. And so when it comes to being characterized by surpassing love, this means not hating your enemies, but loving your enemies. All that's left for us to do now is simply reflect by way of application. Well, do you do this? Do you love your enemies? How ought you be convicted and challenged by the Lord's teaching, even everything we've learned so far? 
And I first need to ask, who, who exactly are your enemies? Like your enemies, your adversaries, your persecutors in life. I think we tend to think of enemies in the extreme sense, someone out to get you, someone out to harm you. And then our mind gravitates toward the grandiose examples of, of loving such enemies. We're moved by stories of Holocaust survivors who later find their Nazi captor and forgive them. And, and that certainly is a surpassing example of loving your enemies for sure. But, but for some reason, my mind gravitates more toward the mundane examples, right? The challenges and the opportunities of loving your enemies in daily life. I'm going to wager that for most of you, the most adversarial person in your life is not some distant evil oppressor. It's, it's probably someone much closer, like a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, a business partner. It could even be your own spouse. We're talking about a person who may not be your enemy, capital E, but they sure act like an adversary to you more often than not. Just, just ask yourself, who is the person who persecutes you, afflicts you, slanders you? There's a good chance that by now a name or a face has already popped into your mind. And when you're mistreated by such people, how are you tempted to respond? Well, like we learned last time with retribution, right? You want to retaliate, fight fire with fire. This could be a trap you fall into often. Maybe you have a child whom you love, but boy, do they know how to push all your buttons when they disobey? They're kind of like, they're kind of acting like a little adversary in your own home. And you just feel like you want to unleash wrath on them. Your discipline turns from redemptive to punitive, from in love to in anger. Does that sound like the right response? Maybe you have a relative you talk to on the phone every now and then. You know how it goes. It starts off nice, but they, they just keep peppering you with little insults, little criticisms, little jabs. You try and be patient, but it just reaches a boiling point. And so you flip a switch, you, you turn the ship around, you fire a, blo- a broadside blast of your own slander and name calling. You hang up on each other in anger and you'll do it again in a couple weeks. I mean, you can fill in the own, your own blanks here, but, but applicationally, I think you would do well to consider the adversaries you have in just day-to-day life. And look, after living through two years of COVID, I think for most of us, your, your enemy, your adversary practically is just that person you know who has just a totally opposite view of COVID than you, and they've despised you for a couple years, and maybe in your heart, you've despised them as well. We know what the wrong response is. To hate them, to do evil to them, to fight fire with fire. What is the right response? Not to hate your enemy, even to love them, to genuinely show love to them. It's not enough to simply refrain from retaliating against them. That's only the fifth contrast. The sixth We're called to actively do good to them, to love them. So what does that look like? Well, for one, we've learned it it can mean just meeting the basic needs of your enemy. If there's some opportunity, you're emulating the common grace of God. If there's somehow a need and you can meet it, do it. You're, you're, You're emulating the good Samaritan's love and going out of your way to sacrifice to help the needy, even if they're your enemy. It's like Romans 12, 20 tells us, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. This is how we overcome evil with good, is finding some way to do good to your adversary. And I think few things have such witnessing power as serving 
an adversary. Right? This is how Christ loved us and won us by laying down his life for us. And so in what way can you humbly, falling on your sword, picking up your cross, how can you actually serve the person who's your adversary and just show them love? You can also love your enemies by speaking truth to them. The Lord called us to be salt and light earlier in Matthew 5. Your adversary might be the one who's constantly tearing you down with their words, but Colossians 4, 6 reminds us to let your speech be always seasoned with salt Meaning, don't revile in return, but consider how you can edify, encourage, and evangelize with your words. It's the most loving thing you can do. How can you edify, encourage, or evangelize with your words? That's a way to love your enemy. That's speaking the truth in love. Plan in advance how you can speak a ready word in the moment to turn away wrath with a word of love. It's a good place to add that loving your enemies looks like praying for them, right? He says, pray for those who persecute you. He doesn't say pray against them, pray for them. And whenever I counsel someone struggling with bitterness or hatred toward another, I always ask them, like, so tell me, have you been regularly praying for this person that God would soften them and change them? And without fail, every time the answer is no. That's probably why they're in my office. It just goes against every fiber of our fallen being. I mean, to pray for wicked presidents or governors or bosses, it just feels wrong. They're doing us so much wrong. How can we pray for their good? But how does the Lord lead us in word and in deed? And listen, few things will actually recalibrate your attitude toward enemies than just praying for them. Like I'm talking every day, praying a biblical prayer for them. Pray gospel-rich prayers on their behalf. And you'll watch as your enemies, it's like they're defanged. I mean, what, what can their attacks really do to you? You're secure in Christ. But as you pray for them, you're going to find the hurt you feel for them replaced by, by pity, by compassion, by a desire for them to receive God's life-changing mercy, which is the only reason you're any different. You once received God's life-changing mercy. You can take these thoughts and run with them in your own daily lives, and you must, because this is not just an intellectual exercise. Is your love surpassing, and is it evidenced by even loving your enemies? I'll say again, you can't do this unless you yourself have first received the love of God. Hatred is the natural response of the fallen heart toward those who oppose us. Even among Christians, this is where our flesh is pulling us. Hatred, hate your enemies. You want to. But for the redeemed, the question really is less, how can you love your enemies? But more so, how can you still hate them? Because when you see yourself through the lens of the gospel, you have to realize, like, who are you? You once were God's enemy. You were God's adversary. You lived in opposition to everything God represented. God would have been only just to exile you in hell away from his glory forever. But you better give thanks. This God is just. He's also more than just. He is also loving. And in that love, he was moved to redeem you, to save you because you and I were helpless. He did this the only way he could by sending his only son to die on that cross, to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead, 
purchase our souls that we might be freely justified, made righteous, and offered new everlasting life. You know the verse, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So now whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And it really is the heart of the gospel. And only when you receive it and dwell on it, will your heart of hatred for the wicked be changed into compassion. It's just like the apostle Paul who felt toward his fellow Jews, most of whom wanted him dead. Still, he said in Romans 10:1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He couldn't help it. He loved them. This is true love. And it's only the gospel that enables it. So take this away this morning. Make this your heart this morning. Make this your prayer. As you think on your adversaries and your enemies in life, see them and yourself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your heart be melted into mercy. This is the surpassing love that characterizes Christ his kingdom, and all those who will enter it. And so I pray it may characterize us as well. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we we exalt you for your word and for your son, Christ. Love come down. The love of God incarnate in the son who, who showed us the true love of God. Lord, you did more than feel for us. You were more than moved to compassion for us. But your love was so true and powerful, it went into action, the self-giving, selfless, serving others action of laying down the life of your only begotten son on the cross to bear the full weight of your wrath, our sin, everything we deserved in our unrighteousness, he bore and swallowed up on that cross. There is no greater love. What more could you possibly do to show your love to us? What else can you do? You've already sent the son to the cross. We thank you for the love of God. For those who've come to faith by your grace and have received that love, we we thank you for it all the more. We, We praise you for it. Let it continue to transform our lives, to melt our hearts, to to overcome our hatred of our flesh. We put on the spirit, the fruit of the spirit of love. If any here hear these words and and they feel the burden because they've not repented of their sins, they've not turned to Christ by faith. They they feel the, the pit of hatred in their heart. There's no outlet. They know they can't be perfect as God is perfect. I pray you convict them uh, that they too need to receive this love that will take every burden off of them, that the Savior stands ready to forgive even them, to bear their hatred and shame and still overcome. May they turn to Christ by faith even this morning and, and find the love of God that is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. May we be people truly characterized by your love, known for loving one another in this church body. A genuine love for brothers and sisters, but not neglecting love for the outsider, for the lost, even for our enemies. So move us, change us. May you get glory as we do so. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.